It's amazing. Genesis chapter 11, if you haven't turned there already, like Sam said, we are finishing up our series in the book of Genesis. And if I remember correctly, this series started back in November. Is that correct? So we've been here in Genesis for a long time, needless to say. Well, hey, uh, just to, to tell a story to start out this morning, I had a friend who about five or six years ago was fired up for Jesus, so much so that she was willing to go down to Ecuador on mission for two years to share the gospel with the people down there. And she was excited. And so to see if this was a good fit for her and that this was going to be the Lord's calling on her life, she went to a a missions conference in Idaho. Her and her mom went there excited to see if, if this was what God had for her. And as she was there, just a little background, her, her dad was a missionary years before this, but about 10 years before this moment, had walked away from the faith, had left the church, and uh, had uh, shipwrecked his faith. Once she's there, he, he calls her because it's her 19th birthday. So she's there at the conference trying to discern if God's will would be for her to go down to Ecuador for two years. And she gets this call from her dad, and, and her dad says, you're being brainwashed. And, and one day you're going to wake up and realize that it's all been a lie. And those people in Ecuador, daughter, they don't need the gospel. They're better off without it. And as she hear, hears these crushing words of her dad, tears start streaming down her eyes. She hangs up the phone and she collapses in tears and sobbing on the sidewalk. What do you do in those moments? What does she do? How does she continue to press on and walk by faith and believe that God would still use her to reach the nations? Even years down the road, as she hears the words of her dad, it's all a lie. You're being brainwashed. How does she continue to move past that and walk by faith and in obedience to what God has called her to do? How does she resist the temptation and not settle and be quiet in her faith? to just shut up. Don't make a big deal of your faith. I wonder, how do you personally handle resisting the temptation to settle when marriage is hard and you're tempted to settle and to just kind of go through the mundane and say, let's just get through another day? How do you press through that, that temptation to just live a, a vanilla life in your marriage? Uh, when all your friends are at, uh, at school are living one way, and, and you know God has called you to, to live another way, and you're tempted to just settle. Say, I'm just going to sit in the back. I'm going to be quiet about my faith. I don't, I don't want to make a stir about this Jesus thing. Or when sleeping in on a Sunday morning sounds so much better than gathering with the saints. How do you resist that? How do you push against that and continue to walk by faith and and not settle in our faith? We're going to be thinking about this idea of walking by faith today. And and through the first glimpses that we get of Abraham and his family, we're going to learn two different practical principles related to walking by faith. Really simple stuff here. Um, you've, You've heard things like this before, but I think there's just a couple really helpful principles in this, this text today that we're going to see. Again, two practical principles on um, walking by faith and how to do that well. So we're in Genesis chapter 11, and we're going to be in verse 10 all the way through verse 32. A lot of this is genealogy, 
And so stay with me as we're going to read this. And then there's like one nugget in here. And I'm just, I'm laying my cards on the table before you right now. There's a nugget in here that I believe is, is jam-packed with truth that's relevant for us today. And that's what we're going to zoom in on. So 11, chapter 11, verse 10 says this. These are the records of the generations of Shem. Shem was the one, uh, was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpachshad, and he had other sons and daughters. Really quick, too. A couple weeks ago when Sam laid out the table of the nations in chapter 10, uh, Shem was talked about. Shem, Ham, and Japheth were the sons of um, of Noah, and Shem is where we get the Jews, ultimately Abraham, and then into the 12 tribes of Israel, where Jesus would come through. And so uh, the, the line of Shem was talked about in chapter 10, but now he's kind of double-clicking on it and kind of zooming in even more so that it'll lead into chapter 12, looking at Abraham. So now we're in the, the line of Shem, and he's kind of zooming in to this line. He says in verse 12, Arpachshad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah, and Arpachshad lived 400 years and three years after he became the father of 403 years after he became the father of Shelah, and he had other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber, and Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber, and he had other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years, and he became the father of Peleg, and Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg and had other sons and daughters, verse 18. Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Reu, and Peleg lived 209 years after he had become the father of Reu, and he had other sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and became the father of Serug, and Reu lived 207 years after he became the father of Serug, and he had other sons and daughters. Sarig lived three, uh, 30 years, and he became the father of Nahor. And Sarig lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor, and he had other sons and daughters. Nahor uh, lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he had other sons and daughters. This is actually interesting. The, the length of people's lifespan was actually narrowing. Are you catching that? As they're, they're going on, they're living shorter and shorter periods of time to match more uh, our lifespans now. Anyways, it says uh, in verse 24, Nahor lived 29 years. I already read that. 26. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram. Here's our guy. Nahor and Haram. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. We're going to see a lot of Lot in the story of Genesis as it continues. Verse 28, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia. In verse 29, Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran. If you zoom in on this, this is really interesting. Milcah was uh, Nahor's niece. Anyways, the father of Milcah and uh, Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Verse 31, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan 
and they went as far as Haran, or if you have the ESV or the NIV, but they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. But what do we do with this? Let's pray and ask that the Lord would help us. Father, we love you, and we trust that your word is truth and that it sanctifies us. And so we come with expectation and confidence this morning. You are the one true God who speaks, that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and pierce between joint and marrow. And so we just open up our hearts to you this morning, and we ask, Lord, that you would uh, breathe on this time. Give us life through your word. Help us to change. Help us to grow to be more like your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So first principle that we're going to see this morning, number one, walking by faith means not settling. Walking by faith means not settling. So where where we're going to get this idea is verse 31. Again, as this genealogy is kind of funneling down into the line of Abraham, where the rest of the book of Genesis is going to spend a lot of time on his family line and really throughout the rest of the Bible. This is where Jesus comes from, this family line. But in verse 31, read this verse with me again. It says, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. They were trying to go to Canaan. That was their goal that they were setting out for. But they went as far as Haran, contrasting. Instead of going all the way to Canaan, they stopped in Haran and settled there. The word settle uh, is actually the same word that's used in chapter 11, verse 2, speaking about the Babylonian people, that they settled in the land of the east and built Babylon there. The word settle is also used of Cain. After Cain killed Abel, he went and settled in the land of Nod, which that literally means that Nod was the land of wandering. And then uh, even Uh, Lot settles in Sodom and Gomorrah in the east. And Paul, I don't know if you remember this, but Pastor Paul mentioned last week that when people are settling east in the book of Genesis, it's not good. It's a sign of moving away from God and moving away from the Garden of Eden. And so I think that Moses is trying to grab our attention with this word settling in Haran instead of moving towards Canaan. And here's the issue. I think the issue is, um, we actually find the answer, interestingly enough, 2,000 years later in a New Testament sermon preached by a guy named Stephen. Remember in the book of Acts, the, the first martyr of the church that we know about, Stephen, is preaching this sermon to the Jews, and he says this, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, or Ur, before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. That is the land of Canaan or the promised land as the Israelites would go in to, to take over. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. So here's the idea. God, before Genesis chapter 12 where he makes his covenant with Abraham and says, come out from your land and go to Canaan, the promised land. 
before this time, apparently, according to Stephen, God had already told Abraham and his family, I want you to come out from Ur and go to Canaan. So God's already told Abraham at least once, by the time we get to Genesis 12, when God calls him out of Ur, he's already told him, I want you to leave Ur and go to Canaan. So apparently, Abraham and his family take off from Ur the Chaldeans with the prophetic voice of God saying, go from here to Canaan, and they stop halfway. They settle there. Okay, so here's, let's put our thinking caps on here. Why is this a big deal? Well, a couple different reasons, but it's because God had already told them to go all the way through to Canaan, and they're stopping halfway. Am I, am I making sense? I know it's, we're trying to like work through this a little bit, but that's what's happening. And so Haran is about 600 miles north of uh, Ur, so the trek to Haran, if we could get that slide there, the trek from, uh, it's the other one, actually could, there's one other map, there it is. So from Ur to Haran was about a 600 mile journey. Uh, that's about from here to Canada, or if you're a Southern California guy like I am, it's like from here to Bakersfield. So they went a long ways, and then if you could go to the other slide, Constance, this is where they were supposed to go. This is down to where modern-day Israel is. It was the land of Canaan. So they went all the way up to Haran, and then they ended up having to go all the way back down, which is about a 400-mile journey back south, uh, southwest. So it was 600 miles up to Haran, and they settled there. Why would they settle there? Why not press on? A couple different ideas. Well, we know for sure that the Bible tells us that Abraham and his family were idol worshipers. They worshiped false gods. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, it's, it says this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, that is Ur, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. So they were, they were idol worshipers. When God had called Abraham, he was worshiping other gods, which kind of pushes against the idea that Abraham was this polished Christian guy who was just waiting for God to have a call in his life, and then he went out. Well, he was worshiping other gods. And so maybe Abraham and his family were attending a moon worship conference or something like that in Haran, and they just got caught off guard and just kind of stayed there for a while. Uh, it's actually a known fact that Haran and Ur were both uh, centers of moon worship in their day. And so they were probably moon worshipers. And so, so maybe they're there worshiping the moon gods, and they're just kind of enjoying the scene. Maybe just another idea is that Haran was supposed to just be a, a resting place. Get a Motel 6, go to Denny's in the morning, get some pancakes. What's their deal? The lumberjack deal or something like that? I'm, my wife and I we used to go there. Anyways... Got a good deal. So maybe like, hey, we're going to get a Motel 6 in Haran, and then we're just going to keep moving. But as they looked around, they thought, this is a pretty great place to live. We could, we could raise kids here. We'll get a job. You know, the mill is hiring, whatever. Um, so maybe they settled after just getting comfortable. We don't really know. But all throughout our Bibles, we see stories of God's people settling for less than what he calls them to. And I truly believe that this is what's going on in this passage. For whatever reason, I'm not going to speculate any more than I already have. It seems like they're settling for less than what God had already called them to, which was the promised land of Canaan, in which is why he has to reiterate it. But all throughout our Bibles, we see stories of God's people settling for less. One of the ones that came to my mind as I was thinking through this, um, my wife and I are actually reading through the book of Exodus right now together. And you just see this, that as the Israelites, 
if you'll remember, God had called the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt for over 400 years through 10 plagues. They saw frogs swarm the land. They saw the rivers turn to blood. They saw swarms of flies and gnats and locusts come and destroy the land. Lightning bolts and hailstones just like destroying the land and all the animals. And finally, God takes the life of the firstborn, not only of the the children of the Egyptians, but also the beasts. And then on top of that, God allows them to be passed over over his judgment because of this Passover lamb, this whole ceremony that, that you see there in Exodus. And then with a handful of treasure, such an interesting thing, God says, hey, go into the Egyptians and ask them for their stuff. And so they go out with like arms full of, of silver and gold, plundering the Egyptians. They walk through the Red Sea on dry ground and they see God's miraculous providence. And literally 30 days later, it's about a month later, they're heard grumbling. God isn't providing for us. It says in Exodus 16, verse 2 and 3, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Man, at least back in Egypt, yeah, we were in slavery and stuff, but do you remember the meals, the barbecues we'd have? Gosh, the bread, homemade bread. And they're grumbling. We wish we could have just settled back in Egypt. Our bondage sounds so wonderful right now. Isn't it interesting? And later on, and we see in the book of Numbers, that even at this point, God begins to rain down um, bread every day, and they're still grumbling. It says this of, of the, uh, the Israelites. They cry out, would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Oh, that we could just go back to our bondage, to live in the world, to be slaves. And this sounds quite familiar for us as Christians, doesn't it? Man, even as, as those who are in Christ, we're walking with Jesus, having received superior promises, in the new covenant in Christ, having the true Passover lamb of God shed for our sins, having a greater deliverance, we still are tempted to settle in our walk of faith. Sometimes even saying, gosh, it'd be better to go back to the world. Read Psalm 73. Man, the world's got it going on. They don't have to struggle like we do. And so we're tempted to settle even though we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even though we have access to the fruit of the Spirit being manifested and worked out in our life, even though we as Christians, we have access to the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God in and through Jesus Christ. Like we're still grumbling a little bit sometimes. Can't we be honest? Oh, man, if I just... We're tempted to settle. And so I just want to ask this question, where are you tempted to settle for less in your walk of faith? Where is it in, in your journey with Jesus where you say, I, I don't want to keep going. I, I want to settle for mediocrity. I want to settle for mundane, vanilla. Where is that place in your life where you just say, I don't want to keep going here. I want to settle like Abraham did. Maybe as a husband or a father or a grandfather. You know that God calls you to lead spiritually, but you say, you know, I, I work hard, I pay the bills, I put food on the table, I've done my job, I've done enough. I'm settling for less than what God would call me to as a husband, 
I know I, I, I wrestle with that temptation. As a friend, maybe you, you're tempted to not go deep with people. All your relationships are an inch deep, and you don't want anyone to truly know you. No one really knows the depths of your sin and your habits and the things that you wrestle with, the, the places that you're hurt by people. And so you keep people at an arm's distance rather than going deep in fellowship and relationship with people, settling for Facebook likes and Facebook relationships and Instagram. Or maybe when it comes to spiritual discipline, rather than disciplining your mind and your body in Christ, you, you settle for a mindless Christianity that's lazy and, and just doesn't really go far beyond going to church on Sunday. And so I'm, I'm purposely pressing on us right now so that, that we'd feel that because we all have this, don't we? There's all areas where we say, I don't want to keep going here. And, and I believe God through his word, hopefully this morning, will, will put some pressure on those points and, and reveal those to us. What kind of faith ends up leading us out of this settling? Like what marks the faith of those who move past the settling into the faith that God has for us? Well, according to the New Testament, we're actually going to look at a New Testament verse. Walking by faith not only means not settling, but it also means um, walking in obedience. Walking by faith means obedience. So that's number two. Walking by faith means obedience. And uh, if you have your Bibles, again, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. So we're leaving this passage behind. I don't think the answer is here in this passage of what kind of faith moves out. But I think Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 does. Hebrews chapter 11 in our New Testament, towards the end of your Bible, before James and 1 Peter and 2 Peter and 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Hebrews chapter 11. This is a, a passage of scripture, this whole chapter that's called the Hall of Faith. As Christians, this is what we refer to as the Hall of Faith. Just this awesome testimony of all these Christians, these godly men and women who followed the Lord and walked by faith and not by sight. And so Hebrews 11.8 is this divine commentary on the story and the narrative of Abraham. And so this is really interesting. He's going to tell us what ultimately led Abraham and his family out of settling into uh, the, the call that God had for him. Read with me in verse 8. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, here's our key word I want us to think about, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So ultimately, at some point in Haran, we know after his father had died, he was compelled to heed the voice of God, which he already heard in Ur of the Chaldeans. And finally, he's ready to do it. This word, not just faith, but look at the word obeyed. So he believed God, but it was, it was obedience that ultimately led him out of Haran into the promised land. And it was, he said he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. You ever feel like faith is like that? I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what it was going to look like. I didn't, I didn't have all the answers. There's mysteries here. I mean, faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But there's still mystery. I mean, as Christians, sometimes I feel like I will have faith as long as God reveals enough of the plan. As long as I know kind of the next step, I'm doing okay. 
But that's not the case here. There was this obedience to the faith of Abraham that I, that I believe is, that's what defines walking by faith. There's obedience implied. Amen? And this is, I, I just want to look at a few other scriptures in the New Testament because it's like, is this a one-off thing? Is obedience really that integral to faith uh, that it really should mark the faith of those who are walking by faith? Just some other scriptures for us. John the Baptist in John 3.36, he says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So he says, believing in the Son, that's eternal life. But to not obey the Son is eternal death, meaning that to not obey is to not believe. Disbelieving is disobedience. Jesus says in John 14, 15, you'll remember this verse. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll be obedient. There will be a measure of obedience. Now, before we get trapped in thinking, wait, this is legalism, isn't it? What I'm saying is that there ought to be an obedience, at least a willingness. Like, God, I want to try. I, w- I will to be obedient. Like, I want to do what you've called me to do. Not that obedience is earning for us salvation, but that obedience is part of the faith um, necessary for saving faith. It says in Luke, or uh, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 6, uh, the historian Luke records that a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. One more for us. Peter says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 in his introduction, verse 2, he says, We're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. He says the purpose of this thing is obedience to Jesus Christ as king. And so here's my point, simply put. Faith that is not obedient is not faith at all. Faith that is not obedient isn't true saving faith. That's what we see in the scriptures, that if someone, if we are not willing to, you we say, yeah, Jesus is my Lord, but I don't want to do what he says. That's not real. Jesus isn't your Lord. Jesus said to to those who are following him, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Don't call me Lord if you're not really willing to do what I I want you to do. And to borrow from an illustration from Francis Chan, you might remember this illustration. If you tell your kids hey, go clean your bedroom. And they go away, and they come back, and you ask, hey, did you clean your bedroom? And they say, no, but we memorized what you said. Okay? We memorized it, and actually we're starting this this small group ministry where we're going to kind of get around together, and we're going to talk about what it could look like to clean our rooms. What are different methods that could be there for cleaning bedrooms? We're going to do an outreach based on cleaning bedrooms. (laughs) So you get the idea. Until they actually clean the bedroom, they've not been obedient to what you've asked them to do. And there's, there's so much to be said about our Christianity that sometimes walking by faith is really hard. And, and as Christians, those who say Jesus is Lord, we have to say, yes, Lord. This, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it. There's a lack of willingness in me, but I still want to. Um, as Christians, we're those who have had our wanters fixed. We want to want to, at least. I want to want to want to, maybe. You know, that's where you find yourself today. But this is a part of walking by faith is obedience. And if we're being honest, sometimes obedience in our faith is like breathing air. 
It's exciting. It's all you can think about. I just want to do what King Jesus says to do. I want to get up and read my Bible. I want to share my faith. I want to do well in my marriage, in my friendships. I don't want to be applying what God says I should do in my real life. Summer camp, worship conferences, Sunday morning, like breathing in air is obedience to Christ. Amen? But then sometimes, this is the only way I can think about it, obedience uh, in our faith sometimes is like digging a hole in rock-hard dirt when it's 107 and there's not a lick of shade. Blisters are getting burnt up on your hands. You're getting sunburnt. You're scorched. It's difficult. It pushes against us, right? And it's trying. So I want to look at three different biblical reasons why obedient faith can be so hard. Why are we tempted so hard to, be, uh, to settle it in our faith? You've probably heard these categories, but I think these are helpful. I think the world... The flesh and the devil are in direct opposition to our obedience in Christ. The world, what is the world? Jesus refers to the world, others do as well. The world is this current system being ran by Satan and flesh and sin. It's this current world pressure that we feel as Christians, that it's like as a Christian, we're swimming upstream. Do you know that? Everything we think and do and believe is very contrary, very, very counterintuitive to our culture, to our world. And so the world has pressure against Christians that, if we're being honest, sometimes the pressure, like, it's like, I'll just settle. Just be quiet about my faith. I don't want to disturb people. I don't want to be that guy. And so the world can make it difficult to be obedient in our faith. Let's just be honest. The flesh, us, the natural tendency of our own, our old dead self that still we're wrestling with. We've been put to death in Christ, and yet that old self is still coming up, and we're still having to deal with that. The selfishness, the lust, the pride, the arrogance, the ignorance that you and I deal with every single day makes it very hard to be obedient to Jesus. Amen? Or this is the fight I have, just like flesh is so hard Man, I am a fool in my flesh. I say stupid things. I do stupid things. That makes it hard to be obedient. The devil, something maybe in the West that us as Christians aren't thinking about as much. We have a real adversary, Satan, who is a, a leader of a bunch of demons who hate you, who hate me. And he really wants to destroy our faith, tear down our faith. He tempts us. He resists us. He deceives us. First Peter says he's a roaring lion going around seeking to whom he might devour. And sometimes if we think about these as three concentric circles, the world, the flesh, and the devil, sometimes we think about the devil. The world and the flesh is like equal size circles equal trouble for us as Christians, but the devil is kind of this small circle. Okay, God, why is this so hard for me right now as a Christian? Well, definitely the world is pressuring me. My flesh is definitely in opposition to what God and his spirit would want for me. But the devil, do we think about him? Do we consider what role might he be having here? The devil festers things. The devil antagonizes things and builds things up. And so we, we have to be considering what, what exactly might our, the enemy be doing here to call us to not obey and to pressure us away from obedience. 
Now, if I said the end right now, we'd all be feeling a little hopeless. We'd all be despairing a little bit. And my intention, this might be manipulative, I don't know. My intention was to put some of that pressure on us until this point. Because it's true. We are tempted to settle. And it's obedient faith that ultimately calls us into what God has for us. To say, yes, Lord. But if we're being honest, that's very difficult. So if salvation is left up to our obedient faith, oh, we are in desperate trouble, friends. Desperate trouble. And so here, I'm just going to relieve us with the, the truth of the gospel. In theology, there's a term called the active obedience of Jesus. The active obedience of Jesus is his perfect record of obedience in his life. Passive obedience is his particular to his suffering and his atonement. But the act of obedience is the every second, every second of every day, day in, day out, perfect obedience of Jesus in his life, uh, in his earthly ministry that then gets imputed to us as a free gift. It gets credited to our account and then our unrighteous record gets imputed to Jesus at the cross. And so we switch Places. This is why Paul could say that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this is good news, church, that Jesus becomes our sin so that we, be, we can become his righteousness. Are you believing this right now? Like, this is good news. The righteousness of Jesus himself is given to you so that, like Pastor Sam said, when God looks at us, he sees the perfect record of his son's righteousness. So now, now that we have that, and he's, he's given that to us, and we understand the obedience of Christ that has earned salvation for us, it's not been us. Now, in light of that, Jesus is our example of what kind of obedient faith looks like. It says in Hebrews chapter 5 that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. So for sure, uh, obedience is part of our walk too. But this is where we look to Jesus as our example. I love Hebrews chapter 12, which was used in our call to worship this morning. Chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's all of chapter 11. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Yes and amen. So easily entangles us. Let us lay it aside and run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So if we're seeking to walk by faith and not get stuck in haram, in mediocrity, in vanilla Christianity. Say, I want to be about it, King Jesus. We trust in the obedience of Jesus Christ, his finished work, his active obedience on our behalf and say, yes, Lord, I receive that. I'm free in Christ, not because I've been a very good boy, not because I've been a good girl, but because I've trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He alone makes me clean. He alone makes me righteous and spotless and blameless before God, beyond reproach, Paul says. And now out of that, I look to Jesus and say, now, now what does it look like to walk in faith? To set aside the flesh, to deny the flesh, to resist the devil, as James says, and to pursue obedient faith 
say, I want to keep moving forward in my walk with Jesus. And if you've not yet trusted in Jesus, and Christianity just seems like a bunch of rules, like it's trying, it's costly, Christianity is difficult, I would say in part you're right. Christianity is very costly. It's very difficult. It's not a list of rules, I will say that, but it is very costly. And you might be thinking, well, what's the point? Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, anyone wishes to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus said, you want to follow me? You got to die. That's costly. That's hard. But he says, if anyone wishes to save his life, he will lose it. You're trying to grasp for your life in in this life. Say, I want to get mine. I want to pursue what I want for my life. Jesus said, you're going to lose your life. You will be separated from God in a place of misery forever and ever. But he said, whoever loses his life for my sake, denial to self, trusting in Jesus that he's done it for me and and he's the way, the truth, and the life, he said, for my sake, he will find it. Jesus is worth it. He is better, friend. He is better than anything this world can offer. The journey of faith is hard, but it's a joy. Anyone who's followed Jesus for any amount of time will say, it is better than anything I could have imagined walking outside of Christ. You know, just the other day, just to to close this way, just the other day I was considering, I became a Christian right before I moved to Oregon in 2012. It's about eight years. That's a long time in my life. And the way that I keep track of time, it's really interesting, I I was considering this the other morning. The way I keep track of time is it seems like everything started once I moved to Oregon and became a Christian. It's like this B.C., A.D. thing, before Christ and after Christ. And as a Christian, you just know that. That just resonates with you. Life starts with Christ. So if you don't know Jesus, throw yourself on his mercy today. Trust that his obedience will be given to you by faith and that he will call you into this amazing, hard, joyful journey. Amen? And let's pray. Father, we do trust that your son has earned obedience for us, that he perfectly walked out obedience for us. And Lord, we find deep, deep rest in that this morning. And yet, Lord, we want to be obedient. We want to be those who say, yes, Lord, send me. I want to do your will. And so, God, I pray just for a nudge by your spirit in all of us this week, Lord, that you would carry us along by your spirit. You would strengthen us to be those kinds of people who say, yes, Lord. Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray today they would trust you, that they would see today that you are the one true God who sent your son Jesus to die for our sins and rise again, and that you've done it all for us. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.